Today on uh, Palm Sunday, I want to do something just a little different than, I don't think I've done something like this for at least for a lot of years, but I want to walk us through the last seven days before Christ's death. And we're just going to kind of touch on different highlights. And uh, um, so, so we're going we're gonna to go back to then. And Jesus was uh, born about 33 years earlier. Some say he was older than 33 when he went to the cross, you know. The scriptures aren't real specific. So gen, as a general rule of thumb, we say he was about 33 years of age. And for good reason. He had begun his public ministry about three and a half years earlier. And so Jesus had been teaching this truth of the kingdom of God that was near, that was at hand. And this was a pretty, a pretty radical message. And so the Jews of the day didn't have any problem with the concept of the kingdom of God uh, because they were still thinking nationalistically. They were thinking as a nation, God is going to restore us. They'd been scattered and that God was going to restore them as a nation. And so they were thinking, okay, concept is good. The kingdom will be reestablished and will no longer be under Roman rule. And uh, we're going to be a shining star again and to, before the nations of the world, as God had intended in the first place when he called out to the Jewish people. But then Jesus would begin to say things along the way in his ministry that was so troubling, even to the disciples, those closest to him, because with, considering the mindset and understanding that they had, what Jesus had to say just didn't quite add up and fit. The kingdom that Jesus was referring to uh, sounded significantly different than the kingdom that they had in mind. So it was troubling, and, and so all through the Gospels, you will see the disciples asking questions, and he tells a parable unto the disciples and some of the other Jewish followers and such, and left them scratching their head again and again, and it certainly would have us as well had we been there. I'm pretty certain of that. So it's relatively easy to read the story, and it's kind of like, hey, guys, why don't you get this? I mean, come on, it's simple. Sure, because we know the end of the story. But they didn't. They were a part of the unfolding, the unveiling of the Messiah and the Christ. And Jesus did not look like the conqueror. He did not look as meek and mild. And he had a whole different approach to, to kingdom life and kingdom power. But we, I want to start on about Wednesday of March 29th, 30 A.D., Okay. Now, some scholars, you say, on a Wednesday, um, certainly that doesn't quite add up because uh, Jesus would have been uh, crucified on a, on a Friday. And uh, what's interesting to notice is that we kind of all know this, even though it's tradition, it's been tradition in the West that Jesus died on Friday um, the part that doesn't quite add up is how could he be three days in the tomb and rise on Sunday morning? Doesn't add up, does it? It's interesting. There's so many things. And these, there are certain things that just aren't uh, necessary to quibble over. They're, they're just not. Because it's not a foundational truth of the Christian faith. It's an interesting factor. 
And so most scholars have recognized that it had to be at least Thursday, and some think it was Wednesday if you start doing the math, and it, it pans out that way then. And the reason it does, because Jesus himself spoke these words. I don't have this one on the screen, but Matthew 12, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there you have it, three full days. So we know it was on the first day of the week that he arose. And the first day of the week on the Jewish calendar would began at sunset, approximately 6 p.m., on Saturday night. All right? So you can't have three days in the ground, in the tomb, between Friday afternoon and Saturday night. Not possible, obviously. So just for fun, anyhow, let's use the date of Wednesday to begin our story. And once again, these things are just interesting little uh, bits, and you might even call it trivia, um, because the main point is Jesus, in fact, came, and he came in Jerusalem, and he went to the cross. But let's just suppose for bed and just use these dates. Wednesday, March 29th, and 30 AD, the last day, days in the life of Jesus began near sunset, and it was his trip to um, Lazarus' house in Bethany, but it began in Jericho, and I think we have a little map, and Jericho is about, third, excuse me, 17 miles uh, away, and so in the early evening after arriving at home, he had dinner with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and so Lazarus after supper, anoints Jesus' feet with a very expensive ointment. And Judas, the guy who carried the money bag, complained that this ointment could have, should have been spent uh, uh, or used to help the poor. Well, of course, we know Judas had it had something else going on with him at that time. But let's go to our Bibles. I'm reading NASB uh, 2020 version, and let's look at John chapter 12. Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they made him a dinner. And Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of expensive perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who intended to betray him said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to the poor people? Now he had said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and he had kept the money box, and he used to steal from what was put in it. Well, therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you have always had the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Well, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not on account of Jesus only, but that they also might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him many of the Jews going away 
were believing in Jesus. This was a great threat to the Jewish leaders, spiritual leaders. And so to, for Jesus to begin to have a following because of Lazarus' testimony of having been raised from the dead, this was quite troubling to these dear spiritual leaders. Thursday, March 30th. Jesus in the morning, he travels from Lazarus' house to, in Bethany to Bethphage, which is a Sabbath day journey. Now, on the Sabbath, you were only permitted to travel up to 1,000 yards, okay? Or 2,000 cubits would be about equivalent of 1,000 yards, okay? And then uh, there he, he mounted a colt for his triumphal entry into the city. The crowds begin to, to, to gather, and, and the crowds begin to give praise uh, to God. And they uh, took their clothes and laid them on the streets, and they cut palm branches on the road and to lay, lay down in front of Jesus. Now, the Pharisees could hear the uproar, and they could hear the crowds praising him. And um, they, they, they asked uh, Jesus to tell them to be quiet. And he replies that if they did not cry out, that even the stones would praise him. Well, very, very interesting, because I want us to, to, uh, to recognize this in verse 12 here. Um, right here. On the next day, when the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of the palm trees, went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, indeed the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young colt, sat on it, and as it is written, do not fear, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, now this verse 15 was a prophetic statement of the Old Testament. Uh, so it was prophesied very specifically that Jesus would come in this manner. But however, something that the Jewish leaders had missed, they didn't understand it. They knew the scriptures well, but for some reason, it just didn't register that, aha, Jesus must be the Messiah. These things his disciples did, did not understand at first, and they were the ones closest to him. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. And that, they had, and, and that they had done these things for him. So all of the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went to meet him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not accomplishing anything. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, it's interesting that <clears throat> the Pharisees, I want to slip back now to the preceding uh, passage there, that in Luke chapter 19, and by the way, I'm just, we're just going to look at this in chapter, uh, uh, according to John, but Matthew has certain details in his gospel, Luke has some, and Mark has some that are not in the gospel of John. 
And it doesn't mean there are errors. It just simply means that as they were writing these, uh, uh, making these notes, that some of them just had certain things that they highlighted in others. But it all fits in together quite beautifully. And so what about these, this thing, though, that Jesus, if, if these stop speaking, he said, the stones will cry out. I, I can't help but just insert a little thought here. What's with that statement? What is with it? Think about it. Jesus being the creator of the whole universe. And the scriptures tell us that all things are in him. There's nothing that can exist outside of him. So even the rocks, while they don't have a mental conscious awareness, there is a life in the rocks. Did you know all rocks have vibrations? They're vibrating right now. All the mountains, you could go to any quarry, and, and, and uh, the, the people that study these things would tell you there, there are certain vibrations and certain frequencies and such. And so, so the rocks are alive even with energy. And uh, because of the spoken word of the Lord that's still resounding throughout the universe. And what it simply means is creation bears witness to what God is doing and what is even about to happen in Christ. This wasn't just some wild, bizarre thing that Jesus is speaking. He is saying this because he is the creator of the rocks. And he recognizes that at the word of the Lord, the whole earth pulsates and vibrates with life and with energy. And so Jesus is really trying to make it a point, an awareness of the universal Christ who um, was creator of the universe and all things are within him. So when you think of God, he's not a finite being hanging out somewhere in the universe, uh, hiding out behind one of the planets somewhere, and now all of a sudden comes into view, all right? The universe is inside of him. To think otherwise would be atheistic in thought. Because an atheist wants to separate and say, well, I don't even believe there's a God because we are self-sustained and, oh my goodness, I don't think any of us want to go down that path. All things are inside of God himself. And so as we read several places in Scripture, um, all things and all people just literally vibrate with energy and the life of the divine one. That's why Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, for him, and he is before all things, and in him... All things hold together. Wow. So the whole earth has this sense of life about it. And there's nothing that can hide from God. There's nothing that can be outside of God. And the good news is sin and evil can't even outlast God. He is the final ultimate authority. And, uh, and he's promised, even Isaiah the prophet said, that all things will be made new. Revelation 21.5. And we get a picture of, of the whole wrap-up of things. And he who sits on the throne, behold, I am making, help me out, 
all things new. Love restores. And this is the whole beautiful message of the cross and the resurrection. A God of love who comes to restore and to make all things new. If we go down to uh, Thursday, March 30th again, as he nears Jerusalem, he begins to weep over the city as we read about in Luke 19. And the reason that Jesus wept over the city is because they did not accept him as the Savior, as the Messiah. And it grieved the heart of our Lord to see a people who were in blindness, who were in spiritual darkness. And he came to his own, but his own received him not. And so the heart of Christ was broken, and he literally wept over the city. Mark 11 says he went to the temple, and then he returned in the evening to Bethany. At the same time, in Luke 19, it tells us that Jesus was teaching in the temple in the daytime. And then chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, which we already read, we already see that Jesus now is on the colt and he marches into Jerusalem. Now, on Friday, on March 31st, Jesus, as he travels during the morning back to Jerusalem, he's a bit hungry. And we find in Mark chapter 11, where Jesus sees a fig tree and he goes to the tree hoping to have a meal and have some figs, um, but there were only leaves. And so he said to the tree, let no one eat from you ever again. There is a spiritual significance in that. We, We won't take time today to pause on it. And then he arrives at the temple and he sees the money changers there at the temple. And, uh, uh, and, and Jesus states in Luke 19, 46, um, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And here was the deal. The money changers were notorious for being corrupt. Um, they exchanged currency for the temple's half shekel coin needed to pay the yearly tribute at the temple. And so those who were poor bought, brought doves and used them to make a temple offering. So we have Jesus um, at the temple. We have the chief priests who all in this time are very upset because even the children were crying out Hosanna to the king. And um, Jesus then, as we already touched on, had to correct the Pharisees, stating that the children actually are fulfilling a prophetic promise. And we could read that in Matthew chapter 21 and Mark 11 and Luke 19. All three record that. That takes us up to Saturday morning, April 1. In the morning while traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus, um, or I should say the disciples actually, if I remember right, noticed that the fig uh, tree is dried up. And it was just an observation they made along the way. Obviously, there's some spiritual truth in that. Everything that Jesus did, didn't, he didn't do it just because he could. There's always a truth in it. And that takes us to John chapter 12 and verse 20. So John 12 and verse 20, and we're going to go to about verse 26. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these people then came to Philip, who was from... Bethsaida of 
Galilee and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is very interesting that throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, he lived an awareness of the timing in which he were to, was to go to the cross. And <clears throat> there were certain situations where Jesus would tell the disciples, and he made comment, it is not yet my time. So here is one who transcends time as the universal Christ, the Christ of the universe, creator of the universe, creator of the world, and yet he comes to live within the context of time to fulfill his mission among humanity. And while he is living in the context of time, he lives with an awareness of time. He's not controlled by time, but Jesus is very much aware of the fact that there needed to be the alignment and things had to develop and to, to align. It's interesting that we go to the book of Ephesians is that the apostle Paul talks to us about not being foolish, but making good use of our time. So while we connect with a God who transcends time, we live within time, and therefore God wants us to learn how to be responsive to him within time. He, we have a certain amount of time that we're allotted here on earth, and within that time period, however it be very short or if it be mid-range or exceptionally long for humans, um, he wants us to live. He doesn't want us to be driven by the clock, but God, I believe, and we have, we have this teaching in several places where he wants us to live in an awareness of what he is up to within the context of time in, with, with, with humanity. So I find that, that very, very fascinating here. So Philip here, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the Son of Man was to be glorified by simply staying in the flow with the Father and the Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were, they're in perfect union together and in perfect synchronization. Okay, And so... As Jesus lived, he was always in communion with the Father. And he said, I don't do anything except that the Father um, uh, tells me. And so this wasn't a hierarchical system, the where it's, yes, sir, um, do as you command, but it's rather about this divine synchronization. And God invites us into that flow of divine life. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's where we're invited. And when we say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, we find ourselves now living, coming alive and into an awareness of this flow of life. And, and sometimes there's like a divine rhythm, if you will, like a divine dance that happens. And, and so God wants us just to learn to enjoy and to be enraptured in what he's doing. In that we experience glory. And this was Jesus. He said, the hour has come for 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. He used that term numerous times, but specifically he's speaking about going to the cross here. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So we'll be, some of you will be planting gardens here in a, in a few weeks. And we recognize if you're going to plant corn, that kernel of corn has to cease being a kernel of corn. When it germinates, it sprouts and begins to grow and take root in order to produce corn on the cob uh, for late summer. Um, but it, it has to die. And, and so Jesus is speaking here something concerning himself, but he is also speaking prophetically of our lives. Because it's probably the greatest snare of, of, of humankind is that to, to live for ourselves. And uh, that comes about and looks different for each and every one of us. Be consumed with self. I got to preserve myself. You know? I got to protect myself. And, and, and so Jesus here is speaking a powerful truth, not only concerning the cross, but he speaks a powerful truth concerning all of our lives. The, the, he invites us to partner with him, to join him in his death, but learning how to live a life of sacrificing our, ourselves for the glory of God. Verse 26, Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. As I said a minute ago, he invites us into this flow of life with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is no greater honor that we can find. There, the, you know, you can stand be, be in front of the greatest crowd and, and get your Grammy or whatever it is. And, um, and there are places uh, where we honor one another within a society, and appropriately so. But there is no higher honor to be found than to say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and allow him to capture our heart's attention. It brings the ultimate honor that lasts for eternity. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing for everyone. Well, <clears throat> we go on into verse 27. And it's interesting um, as to what Jesus has to say. It's, it's actually very profound. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled, and what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour, and for this purpose I came to this hour. Obviously, so here you have Jesus, 100% God, and yet he's man, and in his humanity, his soul is troubled. I mean, the idea of being having the, the Roman soldier seize you and take you and nail you to the cross, I mean, I, I mean it's just a horrific thought. And his soul is troubled, and I don't think any of us would go like, I, I don't know, I don't get that. I think we all would go, boy, we get that and understands that because this is Christ in his humanity. And yet he immediately centers himself and anchors himself in this reality. But for this purpose, I came to do this hour. Even in our lives, there are sometimes there are things that we know by God's design by God's purpose that we're called to do, and it can be highly stressful and strenuous. And yet, we know we must do this. 
just simple things as like being a mom and being a dad. Sometimes it's exasperating. It can have those moments, and yet it's like, okay, I don't really have an option. This is my purpose and calling. I must raise these children. And if it means sleepless nights, uh, as difficult as it is, as taxing as it is on the body, and as stressful as it is on the mind, the emotions as such, uh, this is my purpose now, is to raise this child, that you raise these children. So Jesus was very much like us in this sense. And look at verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Wow. What a declaration of honor before his heavenly father. This shows you the depth of the intimacy of their union as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there was a response, a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd stood by and heard it, were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now, Judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now when Jesus speaks of judgment, okay, we certainly don't believe that he is saying or implying that condemnation is upon the world. No, judgment is on the world. Sin is going to be dealt with. Sin is destructive to the precious humans upon the earth. And so Jesus recognizes by going to the cross that the sin factor, that the curse of death is going to be dealt with. And because of the curse of death, that's why we have sin in the world, this will be dealt with because there will be the judgment upon Satan. Then Jesus goes on and says, and I, if I'm lifted up. Now, he's talking about the cross, of course. He said, if I'm lifted up on the cross, um, up from the earth, excuse me, um, I will draw all people to myself. Uh, <clears throat> the term that draw there is the same term that's used in the Gospels, like a dragnet when they would pull in the fish. And so it's stronger than just like an invitation. It's like an actual activity of heaven that is working on the hearts of humankind. Drawing people toward Christ. How many of you know, maybe some of you have done this in your past where you resisted. I don't want to be drawn and, and it's a reality. There are some people today, they feel the tugging. I've sat with full-grown men who have who, who've said, I know I, I feel like something inside me is drawing me to Christ, but, but I don't want to follow after Christ. They're being drawn or being dragged in little by little, but boy, the resistance sometimes. And there's other times in where it's like, I don't know what happened to me. I just felt something pulling on my heart. And, well, here I am. I want to give my life to God. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. 
And I've had people already say, I can't explain it even. I don't even know that's about your Jesus, but anyhow, here I am. What do I do? Because they have this sense of being, being drawn, and it's a powerful force. I had a fellow one time that his wife had started attending our services, and she had had a Christian background, and he didn't. He had uh, um, never been in a church, and he told his wife he would never, ever darken the door of a church anywhere at any time, and that uh, <clears throat> that's the way it was. And so she had been coming for a few months, and one morning she said she was getting ready to come to church, and her husband was kind of dressed a little different than normal. She said, well, why are you dressed up? He goes, I'm going with you, in a very gruff voice. And he had this gravelly roughness about him. He was a cop. Just happened to be his career. I'm not... <laughs> anyhow. So, so anyhow, he, uh, he said, I'm going with you. They come. And I remember we had a center aisle just like this. Just that building over here on Lafayette Avenue that we had for several years. And he was on this side, back row, two seats in from the back row. And he's sitting there. I mean, just scowling. So we're on the platform, and we're having, we're worshiping, and the team is, we're, we're playing music, and we're worshiping. Holy Spirit It's just like so precious and powerful, and you're just like, oh, this is so good. Get after the worship thing, and I was helping on the team at that time, and so I stepped down off the platform and down to the main floor, and, and uh, <clears throat> so I had just, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I was just opening up for anybody that wanted prayer, to receive prayer, something along that line, pray for healing, uh, or give their life to Christ, or whatever. And, and so I'm just kind of standing there pausing, and he's sitting there like this, and he and, and asked people to stand up, and he wouldn't even stand up. He's just sitting there like this. And so I was surprised that he stayed there. And so other people responded, and next thing I know, here he came running down the aisle. I, I, you heard me right. He came running down the aisle and knelt down right smack dab in front of me. I was as surprised, as surprised as he was. And so I, I kind of knelt down with him, and I said, well, uh, um, how can I pray for you? I don't know. I just want to, well, I just want to, I just want to, I guess, get saved. <laughs> you know? And so he had just a marvelous encounter with Jesus Christ, and uh, he went on to live for Christ all the days of his life. But later, I was asking him over coffee. I said, you came in determined you weren't going to respond to anything. I know. I know. He said, I told my wife I'd never even darken the door. I said, well, what happened that morning? I can't explain it. I just woke up and something inside me just kind of like I said, like, you need to get dressed. You need to go with your wife. You didn't want to go. No, I didn't want to go. And you came. And you sat in the back row like this. He goes, yeah. But what happened? I don't know. I can't explain it. Something just made me stand up. Next thing I know, I'm down at the front. I don't know what happened. Don't you love those stories sometimes? 
That's kind of a picture that I picture of God just dragging us. This lovingly, come on, come on now, son. You're my son. I knew you from before the foundations of the earth. This is your day to encounter Christ, and it's your day to experience the salvation of the Lord. Well, how does all of that happen? Because the prince of this world, Satan, has, has experienced the judgment of Christ, and his, the people of God are liberated. Now, there's still a measure of influence yet that evil has upon us that's going to be dealt with in the, in the final end. And now we got to continue. We got to get Jesus to the cross today here. This is important. So I better get going. But on Sunday, April 2nd, if we use this timeline, in the morning at Jesus' temple, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, for the final time, they confront Jesus. They challenge his authority. You read about it in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 20, okay? And the confrontation lasts from morning, according to the scriptures, clear till late afternoon. They're just grilling him and drilling him. And uh, <clears throat> then they leave there, and they start to leave the temple area for the Mount of Olives. And they go up to the Mount of Olives, and at the Mount of Olives, you look over what is called the Kidron Valley, and you look at the Temple Mount. And so they sit down there, and then we have recorded in Matthew 24 what took place in this location right here. Um, <clears throat> and in Matthew 24, um, we have Jesus and his disciples came to him uh, to point out the temple buildings to him. And he responded and said to them, do you not see all of these things? Now, they are pointing, they're looking across the Kidron Valley, and, 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 and Jesus said, do you not see all these things? There will not be one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us when will these things happen, and when will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Three-part question. The first part of the question is, when will these things happen? When will the stones <clears throat> be toppled? What will be the sign of your coming? Question two. Part three of the question is, uh, when is the end of the age? Jesus goes on in Matthew, and we don't take time to turn to it, but Jesus paints a picture that honestly isn't very, a very pretty picture. The focal point is the city of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, very specifically, they are looking at the temple and they are pointing at the temple. Jesus said, here's some things that are going to happen within this generation. This generation will not pass away until these things are filled. He didn't say 2,000 years from now, the generation in 2023 won't pass away. No, this generation Speaking about the ones he's talking to, they're looking at. This is an actual physical experience here. And he's, Jesus said in these next 40 years, he said, many will claim to be Christ. You're going to hear of wars. Nations will rise up against nations. There'll be famines. There'll be earthquakes. Uh, you'll be hated. Followers of Christ will fall away. False prophets will mislead people. The gospel will be preached to the known world, which it was. The end of Jerusalem will come and the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, and you need to flee the city, 
And Jesus gave some instructions. He talked about false Christ will rise up. And then he ends all of it, says, I say to you, this generation, this generation, not 2,000 years from now, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Interestingly, sure enough, 63 AD, the Romans captured Jerusalem. They surrounded the city. They gave the Jews space, but they surrounded the city. And for seven years, they were a menace to the city, um, to the people. And then in 70 AD, in the month of April, the Roman army then came into close and actually besieged the city itself and uh, for the next five months. And then on um, actually the 29th of August of that year, the Roman army general Titus, he stormed the city. It was a terrible, horrible, bloody battle. And uh, <clears throat> much of the city was destroyed. There's a portion of the Western Wall which still remains, okay? And to this day, and some of you have been there and stood at the Western Wall, and I've been privileged to do uh, the same. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says 1.1 million people perished in that siege, and the majority were the dear Jewish people. Jesus saw it, he prophetically, he being Christ that transcends time, knows the end from the beginning, right? So he knew exactly what would take place. That's why he was weeping over the city. Two reasons he was weeping. One, they did not partake of his life and accept him as savior of the world. Secondly, he knew they would literally physically be destroyed and it just broke his heart. That's why in Luke 21, Jesus was even saying, Okay, what you better do is when you see the Roman armies coming, you need to flee to the mountains. And, um, and so, so some of them did. In Luke 21, it says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation is near. They will fall by the sword, be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Really, really interesting that just as prophetic, as, as clearly as Jesus spoke prophetically here, it happened just like that. So the dear Jewish people were scattered to the ends of the earth. Near evening of that day, the disciples are told that Passover is going to be in two more days. Jesus travels to Bethany and he stays at the house of Simon the leper. And then on Monday, April 3rd, Judas betrays Christ to the chief priests for the 30 pieces of silver. On Tuesday, April 4th, the disciples prepare for the Passover. And at sunset, they observe the last Passover that Jesus will partake of. We read about it in Mark um, 14. We read about it in Matthew 26 and Luke 22 and John chapter 13. And we'll take time to go there today. After the service is completed, they sing a hymn. And they walked to the Mount of Olives. At roughly 9 p.m., while walking to the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of Mount Olives, Jesus tells the disciples what we read in John 15 about he being the true vine and about the significance of being connected to the vine so that his life can flow 
freely into all humanity and we can have a fruit. And he talks about the need for pruning. And there's certainly here in this life, and we will also see it in judgment, to where he cuts away the things of our lives that do not bear fruit. And all of us, if you haven't yet experienced that, you may at some point because it's a painful experience at times. It's highly uncomfortable, but sometimes actually mentally, emotionally painful is when the Lord cuts away the dead wood of our lives. But we, we really want to welcome that because our hearts are to honor him and to bear fruit for him. While they're also here at Gethsemane, Jesus talks with the disciples about John, in John 16. This whole passage uh, where he starts in John 16. This is a continued conversation but he warns them about being considered outcasts because the religious leaders uh, don't understand this whole relational thing with Christ. Then he shares about the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to learn about the Holy Spirit, it's one of the places we always go to, and it's where we should go because Jesus has quite a discourse upon sending the Holy Spirit, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit after he was to leave, leave the earth. And it's a beautiful passage uh, concerning the beautiful work of the Holy Spirit. And then it's also in this evening, he prays for the cup of suffering and death uh, to be taken away. But immediately he responds, Lord, nevertheless, your will be done. And so what you have here, you have the tension of of his humanity on one hand is grieving uh, the reality of him being crucified and yet... The godness in him is saying, but the will of the Father be done. Wednesday, April 5th, after midnight, um, Judas uh, arrives in the Garden of Gethsemane accompanied by the armed officers. And Judas, as a signal of which person to arrest, they had it all worked out, he gives Jesus a kiss, the betrayal kiss. The high priest at approximately 2 a.m. that morning questions Jesus about his disciples and his teachings, but he did not receive an answer. And so the answer that he receives uh, or that he didn't receive so angered him that he tears his clothes and he cries out then that Christ had committed blasphemy. Well, then the high priest immediately asks for the counsel for a verdict, so they unanimously shout that the death penalty should be carried out. Crucify him. Approximately 5 to 6 a.m., scholars tell us as they kind of work through this um, in in order chronologically, um, because Jewish law demanded two sessions of the Sanhedrin to hear and try a defendant, the second trial of Jesus was held about 5 a.m., and basically it was a rubber stamp of the first one. So he's bound, sent to Pontius Pilate, um, the the, the Roman prefect of Judea for punishment around 6 a.m. Judas Iscariot at sunrise, interestingly, repents of betraying Christ. But then he goes and hangs himself because of the shame that was upon him. Chief priests decide to buy the potter's field with the 30 pieces of silver that Judas gave back to them. About 7 a.m., instead of blasphemy, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate under the charge of treason against Rome. 
They do it in order to improve their chances of, of having him put to death. Pontius Pilate, about 8 a.m., tells the religious leaders that he and Herod and Tippus find Jesus innocent, and Pilate wants to release him, but unable to do so because the crowds would have it no would not have it. He winds up to release the prisoner uh, um, Barabbas, and uh, then he has his soldiers severely beat and scourge Jesus. The soldiers take Jesus out to Golgotha, known as Calvary, in the place of the skull to be crucified. Jesus, from 9 a.m. to noon, is nailed to the cross within that period, crucified between two thieves. About 3 p.m. in the afternoon, darkness covers the entire land. Jesus tells his mother to consider the apostle John, her son, and tells John to take care of his mother. At 3 p.m., you know the story where Jesus, the Savior of man, cries out with a loud voice. And he cries out unto God. And after his cry unto the Lord, a spear is thrust into his side, and then he cries, It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Pilate, just before sunset, allows Joseph of Arimathea, a rich member of the Sanhedrin, to take the body of Jesus, to wrap his body in fine linen with a mixture of myrrh, and to bury him in the brand new tomb that Joseph had made for himself. There's abbreviated version there we, I just shared with you over those la, the last week of Christ Jesus' life. To wrap this up today, I think there's something that we really want to hold on to in a very beautiful and precious way. Adam and Eve was not God's first attempt for mankind, and then he had to send Jesus to sort out the mess. Jesus was not plan B. God knew that Jesus would become man even before time began. And Jesus in his coming was not the beginning of grace. He had always in eternity had been full of grace and truth. It was the revealing of grace when Christ came in the incarnation. And the events in the history of our world in one real sense had already happened since in eternity Christ knew the end from the beginning and before it even happened in our timeline. God always sees that bigger picture. And that's how we can be, that's one reason why we should be encouraged by the Lord in life. He sees the end from the beginning. And in the end, as we keep our hearts towards God, through Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're all going to be okay. Regardless of how tumultuous life can be, regardless of the failures of our own making or because of the irresponsibility of other people, that's why we can sing, it is well with my soul. It may not feel well in the moment, but eternally speaking, we can declare, it is well with my soul. What happened to Christ happened to us because all of humanity was in Christ in the incarnation. And when Adam sinned, 
all of humanity experienced the curse of death, how much more when Christ came in the incarnation, he enfolded us into him very self. And that's why the scriptures tell us that when Christ died, we died with him. Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, it's, it's hard for us to sort through that, but here's the reality. Jesus didn't take a survey and say, how many of you would like me to die for you so you could experience forgiveness and life eternal? I'm going to take this survey, and if I get the majority that says yes, then I'll do it. He just did it because that was love. That was love being made known to humanity and love manifested. I'm just going to lay my life down, but I don't just lay it down for those that I think may want me to in the future that may respond to me. I'm going to lay it down for everybody. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, was past tense with Christ. And we're like, this doesn't make sense. Some things in the kingdom will never make sense to us, but there is a truth that he wants to reveal through us through scripture, how that because of this union that we have with, with Christ Jesus that didn't start when I prayed the prayer to receive Christ, but he already had me in mind. You were there, I was there. We, we all were there at the cross. And that's why Colossians talks about you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 said that God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself on the cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, it wasn't for those who in 2023 would say yes to Jesus. No, he's like, no, whether they want it or not, I'm reconciling the whole world and I'm not going to count their trespasses against any of them. And we go, what? It doesn't make sense. We're very sin conscious because we feel the shame of our own sin and we somehow feel like that, boy, I don't know. I hope God can forgive this. If you had any idea how many times I've had people ask me this, do you think God could forgive me for X, Y, Z? And they're very, very sincere because it feels like it's insurmountable. It's something that I don't know if God would be willing to do. And he already reconciled all of humanity. He did it for all people in one fell swoop. He doesn't reconcile people on a one-by-one -one basis. They, okay, so on this day in 2023, this person says, I'm going to receive Christ as my Savior and my Lord. Oh, now I think I need to go reconcile him today. He's already been reconciled. Every person on the earth has already been reconciled. Just most don't know it yet. That's why the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the testimony is so important that we can share the good news, how we discovered and come to have our eyes opened and to behold Christ and to embrace him as our Lord, that we could experience the salvation of the Lord, which is so important for every single person to experience. I love this scripture, and we're ending here. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions as humanity. This is speaking of the cross. While all of humankind was spiritually blind under the curse of death and sin, 
while humankind, and Paul caught the revelation, while we as humanity were all dead in our transgressions, we were made alive together with Christ, for by grace are you saved. These are good days, and they're good days as we are put into remembrance of the great love of the Lord for the whole world. Just as Jesus grieved over Jerusalem, sometimes our hearts we grieve, and we should feel compassion if we see any person or any people upon the earth who have not yet had the eyes open into the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. That's why we pray. That's why we share our testimony about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And let's stand up together today. And I, I just want to invite us just to take a moment to pause and just say thank you, God. I want to invite you to extend your hands with me. And we say thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that the chains of bondage and sin have been broken by the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Thank you for your amazing grace and your love. Now, Lord, for the sake for any in this room, for any in our cities, our families, and for any of the peoples of the earth, open the eyes of our heart. May there be a spiritual awakening unto the reality of who Christ Jesus is and what he has done for everyone so that we may experience the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ and have this promise of hope eternally. Thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. And everyone said, amen and amen.